at this point, one of my first principles or things I've come to believe on this stuff is it's like, it is not a holy grail. It's not a silver bullet. It doesn't solve everything. There are no solutions to everything in all of this. We're all just trying to figure out how to make improvements. You know, if suddenly waved a magic wand and had all the transparency I could ever want, it would help. And But there would be, still be a shit ton of challenges. <laughs> and also <laughs> a lot of new ones and lots of unintended consequences. My name is Charlie Johnson, and this is Untangled, a newsletter and podcast about technology, people, and power. I'd like to start by welcoming all of you who subscribed to Untangled after Substack featured it on its homepage. I'm grateful to Substack for the recognition, and I'm so glad that you have decided to learn alongside me. This week, you are in for a treat. So in December of last year, I wrote an essay entitled, quote, some unsatisfying solutions for Facebook. In it, I outlined the limitations of transparency and its relationship to accountability, power, and trust. Well, there are now a number of policy efforts underway in the EU and US that would require platform companies like Facebook to be more transparent. To get this out of the way, I'm not against transparency. But I also think it's important to grapple with the limitations of transparency and ask questions like, what kind of transparency leads to accountability? Does transparency actually cultivate trust? It's in pushing on the concept of transparency that we can better understand what problems it helps solve, what problems it definitely will not solve, and what new problems it might create along the way. This week, I hosted Brandon Silverman on the pod to discuss these questions and more. Brandon is the co-founder and CEO of CrowdTangle, the data analytics tool that was once at the center of internal fights inside Facebook over just how transparent the company should be. Brandon left the company in October of 2021, and he's now supporting many of the policymakers crafting the legislation I mentioned a moment ago. We get into his time at Facebook and the fights over CrowdTangle, but we spend most of the time exploring Brandon's views on transparency and how they have evolved over time. It's a really great conversation, and I'm so grateful to Brandon for coming on the pod to talk about it. I'm also grateful to you for listening. As always, if you like the podcast, please review it, rate it, and share it. It really does make a difference. And now, on to the show. Brandon Silverman, welcome to Untangled. Thank you. Excited to be here. So what's your story? How did you get to where you are now? Coming out of college, I was in nonprofit kind of community organizing space, but I was also a technologist back from early days, middle school, high school. Uh, I remember learning Logo at one point. After doing kind of nonprofit and organizing work for about seven or eight years, I left in order to try and see if I could blend the two and build kind of an online space where people could organize around issues they cared about. But at the time, it was a really big, essentially like software gap in the organizing space. Mm -hmm. If you were a nonprofit, an advocacy group, uh, even political campaigns, you were very good at using email. 
but the dream of having online spaces where your volunteers and your community could come together and self-organize was one that was like, everyone was trying to build and figure out some way to do, but like none of them were actually working. I had been doing this work for a while, but saw the potential of, of doing something in, in, the, in the online space around it. And so recruited one of my best friends from college and thought we had a couple ideas on how to tackle it. People had been trying to build tools like this for a while, but had always been building these like standalone independent apps and tools. So things like Nation Builder and Blue State Digital and other stuff. And we had been watching closely as Facebook rolled out more and more APIs, including their, their really big open graph suite of APIs. And we also saw that a lot of the people that anybody wanted to organize were already using Facebook every day. And so in a very kind of organizer ethos, we we're like, well, let's just go to where the people are and see yep. if we can kind of build organizing tools on top of this massive platform that everybody seems to be adopting. So we started playing around with, with the APIs and the very first one we built was actually around Occupy Wall Street. We basically built this front end where we took every single page, public Occupy page, public Occupy event, public Occupy group, and we put them all into a single interface. So if you wanted to see all the things happening on Facebook around Occupy Wall Street, you could go to the single interface and we had maps, you could go and see all the things around you, you could see we'd love to all the social information. So you could see all the ones your friends were in. We also had a feed of all the best content coming from all those things. The vision was that if you were, you know, Sierra Club, you could do the same thing around, you know, conservation and environmental stuff. Anyway, that was the original vision. It didn't work for a bunch of reasons. But what did happen is that that one feature, which showed you all the best content coming from all those things turned out to, to like, to be really valuable for a very specific set of people inside the partners that we were working with. And that kind of began the path to what, you know, people now know as CrowdTangle. I love that CrowdTangle's origin story begins with Occupy Wall Street in a way. I don't share that a ton, but that, that is the truth. Our very first one was called the Occupy Network. I think it was, it was a a non-trivial part of like the tech stack of Occupy Wall Street movement for a while. I want to talk to you about your views on transparency, its utility, its limitations, its relationship to accountability, trust, power. But I want to start with your time at Meta. So you walk into Meta on your first day. I suppose it was called Facebook at the time. How did you think about your job in that moment? And sort of what did transparency mean to you? So the truth is that at the time, we didn't really actually think of ourselves as a transparency tool. When we joined, we were a part of a, a kind of new effort by Facebook to double down on their relationship with the news industry. So we joined in basically January 1st, 2017. And for four to five years, Facebook had been increasingly putting more and more news content in the, in the main blue app. Uh, which they call it. And for a while, that had been great. It had been rainbows and sunshine and puppy for everybody. For Publishers were suddenly getting tons more traffic. Facebook was finding a new type of content that was also driving lots of value to, to their users. And it was, everyone was in love with each other for a while. But what happened was it eventually ran into some kind of just fundamental structural challenges that started to make the relationship a, a lot more complicated. And probably the biggest one is just that it eventually ran out of how much news content you can put into the feed of your average user. And so competition over that space started to get really intense. What it meant is that publishers 
was that one month they would get 5 million visitors from Facebook and the next month they would get, you know, 50,000. And it became this kind of slot machine-esque game. And that can be really disruptive if you're a publisher trying to figure out what your strategy is going to be over the next six months, what teams to hire, where to lean into, especially at a time when the entire business model of your entire industry is going through a big upheaval. So Facebook acquires CrowdTangle in part to address this problem. The idea was that um, we were a tool that a lot of news publishers were using all over the world, that they news publishers really got a lot of value out of. And it both helped news publishers put great content on Facebook, obviously, but also it just helped them with a lot of their growing just daily activities in the new, this new digital era that some of them were good at, but then some of them weren't. So at the time, transparency was not something built into like our core value proposition. Um, it was obviously beginning to grow in importance for a handful of our partners, but the vast majority of our partners were using it to just help figure out their social strategy, to help just do their own news gathering on a daily basis, to help with some of their marketing and sales, just do all the things that this social data unlocked for them. So at the beginning, it sounds like CrowdTangle was a tool more or less to help news publishers. Over time though, right? Like it its role within the company changed. So I'm curious if you could talk a bit about its evolution and sort of how Meta came to see it um, and its utility. As soon as we got there, all the other teams across the organic partnerships universe was like, hey, can we also get that for um, all of our sports leagues and all of our entertainment partners and all of our nonprofit partners? Suddenly realized it was just an incredibly effective for anybody doing anything with organic content. I think it was around year, the end of year two, where we, we, we began doing all these pilots with all these different organizations and they all went pretty well and were pretty meaningful. And so at some point I, I actually went on parental leave with my second kid. And when I came back, I think my whole team was a little bit getting very uh, unsure about like, what is our mission here? Like we're no longer, mm. we're clearly no longer just helping the news industry. And um and so we sat down and basically we came out with, it was like, hey, what if we stepped into the role of being one of the main ways Facebook is transparent with organic content with the outside world? So in a piece by Ben Smith in the New York Times, you sort of nod to this and you say that there was a vision about transparency that I believed in and my team had come to believe in and that it was clear we wouldn't be able to pursue inside Facebook as much as we had in the past. So what sort of changed and what made it hard to pursue over time? Yeah, we, we got red-pilled on transparency because of like the work we were doing. And you know we were very close and deep with a lot of partners and increasingly uh, the ones in kind of the civil society space where we were seeing the impact of what would happen if you made this data available to groups working on all sorts of things related to the public interest. And the overarching first principle of it was anything related to public content that touches also anything related to like civic or political or, you know, news discourse, we should be making it all as open as possible. You know, that, that's essentially kind of what I was referencing in the Ben Smith quote while trying to be polite about it, but, you know, I was mm -hmm. to make it concrete, you know, there were all sorts of moments when Facebook would release very large new public things into the world 
And sometimes they were transparent about it. Sometimes they weren't. And we would have these moments where new things would get released. And after three, six months of them being out in the universe, we'd go and approach that team and be like, hey, we think we should like roll this data into CrowdTangle. And sometimes we would win those, not even win. Sometimes those product teams would be aligned and excited and we would do it. Other times there would be hesitancy. Sometimes there would be outright you know, opposition. And our first principle is always like, hey, if this is reaching, I think at some point I even quantified it. I said, hey, if there's a new product that's reaching at least, I don't know, 5 million people or something, we should start to consider that something that the platform should be transparent about. And so, you know, one of the fight, one of the, not the fights, but one of the debates that happened internally was, uh, you know, Facebook had 2017 or 18 had started doing fact checking and they were starting to put labels on, you know, public posts about whether they were false, true, misleading, et cetera. And the program had been in existence for maybe a year and a half, two years, basically been super public about it, funding lots of fact checkers. Uh, it was going to be a core part of how they dealt with the 2018 election and the 2021, as well as just other elections around the world. And we were like, hey, this is getting important enough. You sh we, should be, we should roll all this into CrowdTangle and have the labels be public. And, and we weren't able to, like, to make that happen. But that was a sort of debate where it was like our vision was like, if it is open and public and connected anyway to like important public interest parts of the feed, we should try and roll it out and be transparent with it uh, as early as we can in the life cycle of any new products. And so that was, you know, part of where the, there was not alignment on that idea at like a foundational level. And that's also trying to be a little delicate around how to talk about some of this stuff, but yeah, that's the basic idea. <laughs> totally. No, I, I can appreciate that. I'm fascinated by the sort of stories we tell ourselves about what we're doing and why. And I could see CrowdTangle serving as a kind of challenge to the stories that employees within, a, within the company told themselves about Meta, about the work they were doing, about their impact on the world, because it's sort of laying everything bare, showcasing a number of the issues that are occurring on the platform. How do you think the presence of CrowdTangle challenged or altered how employees saw Meta and their work? That is a heavy question. One of the things I experienced is that um, there's definitely a, a, a substantial number of people I met and worked with while I was there who were just incredibly like, like thoughtful, civic-minded people, oftentimes with like incredible resumes of like doing work in the public sector that I was always felt imposter syndrome, just like being in the room with them, who I think suffered no like delusions about some of the externalities of the platform and, and, but were there and were like getting out of bed every morning because of the ways they thought they could help either like mitigate some of those or make them better. There were a lot of thought people who were like, yeah, I'm, I'm here exactly because of those issues. But that being said, I also am confident uh, that some other people, I think there was the exact dynamic you were talking about. I actually found that dynamic a bit more uh, as you got more senior, the mm -hmm. one you're referencing, mm -hmm. where I think there are people who've been there for a very long time. And I think recognizing and internalizing some of the ways in which Facebook wasn't good for the world was harder people we worked with saw the wins with their partners, which was always really powerful. And I think we actually, why we had a lot of advocates and fans internally. But I think once you got more up to the senior level, they frequently only saw 
the public right. scrutiny. So there are people internally who both believe in the importance of transparency and are clear-eyed about the problems on the platform. And then there's a cohort of leaders for whom CrowdTangle is actually challenging their conception of the platform's role in the world. To me, this gets at the question of whether transparency can drive internal change, and more broadly, about the relationship between transparency and accountability. I think, I think we get into trouble when we conflate the two things or assume that transparency necessarily leads to accountability. I think of it as a means, not an ends, that transparency is a, a tool in our toolbox to try to achieve different outcomes, but that it doesn't guarantee those outcomes. How do you think about the relationship between transparency and accountability? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think one of my, at this point, one of my first principles or things I've come to believe on this stuff is, it's like, it is not a holy grail. It's not a silver bullet. It doesn't solve everything. There are no solutions to everything in all of this. We're all just trying to figure out how to make improvements. You know, if something waved a magic wand and had all the transparency I could ever want, it would help, And but there would be still be a shit ton of challenges. <laughs> and also <laughs> a lot of new ones and lots of unintended consequences. And then I also think that um, everything is trade-offs. And so with transparency, you're going to have some negative ones. I mean, you're going to have both unintended consequences. I think anytime, certainly if you're thinking about transparency from a regulatory standpoint, and you're asking governments to demand information from private companies, like that's a super fraught and mildly terrifying thing to do. But I also think the alternative right now, um, uh, or at least has been to date, is the concentration of power and control over very important information ecosystems in the hands of like a very small set of companies and in some cases a very small set of individuals in a way that like I think is not getting us where we want to go. I also I think you alluded to this a little bit but like transparency means a lot of different things. There are a lot of different types and I I separate them out into um and this is where I think we're going to nerd out on transparency which would be fun. So I think there is both the like what are you trying to get out of transparency? Mm -hmm. Um and I think some of those include things like accountability, trust, I think co-design is one that is also um, out there, which I think a lot of the academic research, like what they're really interested in is helping platforms design their systems better. Mm. But I think the last one is almost like, is a governance outcome, which is when there are large information ecosystems that house a lot of public and broadcast oriented where accounts can reach lots of different people, that platforms have gone out and deliberately built and are now really important to, <laughs> to the public interest, the more open you can make those, like the better they become over time and also just better ecosystems they end up being. You know, it's a little, it's kind of rooted in basically like a John Stuart Mill marketplace of ideas. And you want ideas to be able to run into each other and if they're always siloed in black boxes, then you lose some of the efficacy of like self-policing debate and free speech. And so can we take any of these mechanisms where they are public, they are broadcast oriented, they've become really important to the public discourse and make them as easy as possible for everyone to see what's happening on them simply to facilitate debate and discussion and engagement. Because like, you know, one of the things you'll see frequently is you know, studies and reports look back and discover really important narratives and um, things that went viral 
in you know ahead of an election or during a, a conflict zone or a particular time, but they'll report on them like three or four years later. Right. And so can you in any way facilitate more of that happening in real time? And then from like a governance standpoint, you know, I think certainly what I saw at Facebook, and I think a lot of this has come out in Facebook papers and other things, is these platforms are so huge. There's almost impossible to manage. Um, and certainly when you talk about like managing them with any sort of like local context and nuance and knowledge, especially if you get outside of the developed world or markets typically important to the platforms. Um, and if you can in any way provide data that allows local communities to help participate in the management of those spaces, I think that's a, a much more effective long-term governance model if we're going to continue to have these centralized systems uh, as big and powerful as they are. So, you know, a lot of the work that we got most, you know, I think it was like the most rewarding to us was working with civil society groups and human rights organizations and electric protection groups in places like Myanmar, and Sri Lanka and Ethiopia and other places because they understood the context of what was happening and they could use CrowdTangle to flag stuff for different platforms to get removed. They could run ad campaigns to counter it. They could spin up their own narratives. And, you know, as that, that was almost like a governance solution to the inherent problem of the scale of the current state of these platforms. Yeah, I mean, listen, I was a CrowdTangle user when I worked on disinformation, it was really helpful to track problematic narratives in real time. I also agree that the problem is one of scale. So we only get to make decisions that have trade-offs, but I still wanna drill down a bit into the relationship between data sharing and accountability. And I think a framework might be helpful for us to think with. So there's this transparency scholar named Jonathan Fox who talks about data sharing by itself as a form of quote, opaque transparency and that it reveals information without revealing how companies actually behave. For example, Meta might use a tool like CrowdTangle to share meaningful data without showing how company decisions and practices led to the underlying algorithms that produced such data. That we would need data about institutional behavior to get at what Fox calls, quote, clear transparency. And that in order to move toward anything resembling accountability, we would need the right to call those in authority to justify their decisions and actually produce information about how they make decisions. What do you make of Fox's framework? Yeah, I mean, I remember reading it and I thought it was like a, a super interesting idea and I spent a lot of time on it. And I think it helped shape how I, how I thought about it. One way I would reframe it a little bit is almost thinking about it as like consequentialist versus deontological transparency. So I was like a philosophy major, bear with me for a second. You know, it, it was almost like, how much do we care about what the platforms intended to do with something versus what were the outcomes of what they did? Hmm. Now, listen, I generally think that like we need to let a thousand flowers bloom and we need to like try a lot of different things in this space. So I'm not sim simply here saying like poo-pooing like the more process oriented transparency. And actually, I think it's like super important. And there's a lot of it in the Digital Service Act just passed in Europe. There's some really interesting stuff about like having platforms talk about like what what were they optimizing for and here and there which i think is is great but what i also saw a lot at facebook was moments where they were optimizing for one thing and when they shipped it it had an entirely different outcome yep 
and, and like not a few number of times did, did I feel like that happened. I think this also gets back to the scale issue where they could intend to do something and think they were doing something that was going to have X results, but it turned out it had Y, Z, W, V, W once you rolled that thing out to the entire world. What I came to see was the value of outcome-based transparency where people could uh, be able to see what the what what the actual results of those things were because they were not always they didn't always match up with what they were trying to do. Meaningful social interactions is a good example, and I knew a lot of the engineers who were working on it. I you know I got to know some of the product the feed leadership team at the time, and you know there were certainly people who were like genuinely wanted to get back to more user to user interactions and engagement on the platform. And what ended up happening was they got that, but it tended to be a lot of people yelling at each other. <laughs> but so I think what I came to see more and more was, again, this because of the issue of scale and complexity, the value of being able to have the outside world look at what the actual result of that thing was in real time. And, you know, we also saw, I was like, it's, there are a lot of data scientists at Facebook, but like not enough to measure everything all the time. And so there were, like countless moments where um, because of public, because of things our partner base discovered on CrowdTangle, they were able to flag and, and, you know, sometimes flagging it was tweeting about it and, you know, um, but it would help internal teams realize that they had missed something or some rollout they did was having an understanding consequence. I'm probably at risk of coming across as the anti-transparency guy. I'm not against the idea itself, but I do want to push on its limits because as you note, when platforms are as big and complex as they are, we shouldn't assume that transparency leads to good governance outcomes. Yeah, no, no, I'm terrified of getting this wrong and having any of these <laughs> things backfire. So, um, and you know, also my entire, my entire view on transparency and everything I'm kind of like feeling like I'm sharing, like I thought we learned, I'm like 70 to 75% confident on it, you know, like, yeah. And sometimes less. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be, I mean, in some ways you're known as the transparency guy. You co-founded what became the main transparency tool used within Facebook. You're now working on legislation in the US and EU that would require more transparency of big tech. What's it like advocating for something for which you have so many questions? You know, I do think our public discourse at the moment, it definitely weights confidence and epistemic certainty. Right. And so the more willing you are to generalize and make sweeping conclusions about complex things with a lot of definitiveness, I think is rewarded. And there have been lots of moments where I, I've not been invited into certain moments and rooms, I think, because I'm not quite willing to be that. And mm. in general, I think we need more humility around what we think we know about the world. And I think as, as I've gotten older and I'm not that old, I've just, I've found myself increasingly less willing to be, to pound my fist on the table on pretty much anything. Certainly when it gets analysis of like large complex systems, you know, I, I think it's just really hard. Yeah. I'm with you there. All right. Well then in the spirit of continuing to push on the limitations yeah. of transparency, there's a, a great paper by Kate Crawford and Mike uh, Anani called Seeing Without Knowing Limitations of the Transparency Ideal and its Application to Algorithmic Accountability. In it, they argue that transparency can be disconnected from power. So that quote, transparency can reveal corruption and power asymmetries in ways intended to shame those responsible and compel them to action. 
but this assumes that those being shamed are vulnerable to public exposure. They go on to argue that, quote, power that comes from special private interests driven by commodification of people's behaviors may ultimately be immune to transparency. So when you, when you think about those with power within Meta, what do you make of that argument? You know, I think one of the reasons we got red-pilled on transparency internally was actually because we saw the ways in which it did influence decision-making. The news coverage drove a lot of decision-making mm-hmm. internally. Um, it did, you know, and I think maybe not always for the right reasons. And I think sometimes there were certainly people who were like, are some leadership is too reactive to bad press. But, you know, I mean, one of the jokes internally, not jokes, but one of the realities internally was that there were oftentimes individuals and teams internally at, at Meta who maybe were trying to fight for some policy change or some resourcing. They would bring their own internal data to, to whoever the decision makers would be, couldn't get what they were hoping for, for whatever reason. And then that thing would get covered publicly. And then suddenly they could. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes one of the ways it got covered was it would suddenly show up somewhere in a crop tangle. It's in Facebook's interest to manage their public reputation. And I think they certainly want it to be an accurate one. And so it's not that reacting to that stuff was, I think, in, inherently anything wrong. And actually, I think in some ways, like the goal of the press and news industry is to hold power, power to account. And so in some ways, for me, that was like a natural balancing act, but CrowdTangle was helping fuel it. I mean, this gets to the sort of like recursive and complex relationship between transparency and news media coverage. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, there's this idea in the literature around strategic opacity, that if we bound actors to transparency regulations, in this case, platform companies, they will purposefully share so much unimportant data that it distracts from or conceals what's actually important and relevant. And in some ways, this gets at the notion that like platforms can exploit the gap between what they share and what we collectively focus our attention on. So I'm curious, like, how would you describe that gap? A lot of Facebook's transparency efforts were, I think, in, in good faith while I was there. In the moments when they fell down, I think it tended to be what was it, like Hamlin's law, like never attribute to malice, but it can be like better explained by like dysfunction. Like that that right. tended to be more often like the explanation on like the times when things fell down. And so the idea that there was like deli- when at least when I was there, that there was like deliberative attempts to like gaslight the space or do anything just I think overestimates both like the strategy behind any of it as well as like even interest level, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, the other dynamic of when you have platforms this large and powerful, the sheer volume of like, incredibly significant things they're dealing with on a day to day basis is like hard to wrap your head around. And so there's this, I I haven't figured out a good way to talk about this, but there's there's a dynamic that somebody calls like the importance gap, which is like, there are things that are just incredibly important to like the outside world and civil society and everything, everybody except for Facebook. Those things are oftentimes like, don't reach the level of like mild importance internally. <laughs> you know, they're ultimately not, it's not, a, it's not a public good. It's not a civic run organization. It is, a, you know, it's a for-profit enterprise and yada, yada. So I, I think sometimes it's like 
things are moving quickly and rapidly. And there's oftentimes like not the org structure set up to deal with these things. And so it is far more often the case of a, it is like you're seeing the org chart being shipped rather than like lots of than any than any real strategy. And honestly, part of what happened with CrowdTangle was just running into the fact there wasn't like actually a coherent company-wide strategy um, at all. And part of the reason we were able to do so much is because there wasn't one and we were able to run pretty far um, before we had to force like a, a very like high level discussion about it. So this gap between form share and what we focus our attention on is mediated by the media, right? So yes, in a world where platforms are regularly sharing data, how do you think journalism needs to adapt? You know, the relationship between the platforms and the news industry has like been evolving and one of the main vectors on which this has been evolving is just a continued lack of trust between the right. two. And so, you know, when we got there, there was a real interest in trying to, I think they saw the canary in the, in the coal mine that like, Hey, this relationship is beginning to degrade. How can we like, we how can we help it? But the, the fundamental like lack of trust just continued to erode while we were there to the point where neither side trusts each other at all, really. You know, I think one of the questions at Facebook right now, and one that I think is going to come to a head in a few months, is should we keep sharing data with journalists at all? Mm. And they're going to be forced to share some data with academics and researchers because of some of the regulation, but um, it, it, they're not going to be forced to continue sharing data with journalists. And all of the original like impetus around when we were brought in to, to literally just do it with journalists and not anybody else, that entire environment has changed a lot and it may result in them saying hey we actually think journalists don't have the ability to like cover us fairly and so we're going to cut them off entirely when private companies just decide that journalists don't have a role to play in um they're you know holding them to account at all then that seems fairly problematic to me what about the gap internally within the company between what folks believe and what the data say. What companies know internally is not as like an organized canon of like, you know, accepted information as I think people might otherwise assume. And I'll give it, I'll give like a couple of concrete examples of that. Like, you know, a lot of things that came out in the Facebook papers from Francis Haugen, those were not, a lot of that research was not the like the three month or six month culmination of a team doing a deep dive into X and Y and being like, here's the base ground truth for this question about the platform. Instead, it was oftentimes like a single research scientist or sometimes even just a single person somewhere on partnerships or somewhere else doing a deep dive on something and just, and publishing what they found internally. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they were like qualified to be looking into that. Other times they weren't at all, you know, like I wrote some memos. I probably wasn't like qualified to really write <laughs> And, but what it, I think spoke to is that like, there are very few things about the platform where there's like a baseline truth that they can say, we know this definitively about the platform. There's both like the gap between outside and inside. And then there's the gap between inside and like whatever the actual reality is. <laughs>
transition to a thread you teased out a little bit a minute ago about the relationship between transparency and trust. And so there's this idea, sort of this sort of assumption, right, that like the more that transparency is an important way by which we can build trust with society. But at least broadly speaking, like when I look around, I'm not so sure about that. Like I, and I was I was listening to uh, an Ezra Klein podcast, which helped to clarify some of this for me. He was interviewing Vitalik Buterin, who's founder of Ethereum. And Ezra made the point that over the last 70 or so years, our institutions have gotten way more transparent. Like when you think of FOIA requests, GAO reports, visitor logs at the White House, and yet trust in those institutions has completely plummeted. And more than that, he made the point that some of the least transparent institutions, when you think of those like military, police, Supreme Court, they're actually the most trusted. And at some level, it makes sense, right? Like if institutions are more transparent, it makes it a lot harder for them to operate. It's also a lot easier for its critics to sort of mobilize their critiques. So what's your sort of mental model for the relationship between transparency and trust? Yeah, when we were there, there was a period at which Meta thought about transparency as a way to build trust and legitimacy. And for a while, we we either we dipped our toes at some level into like, like that entire framework. It's really hard for a bunch of reasons. One is that there's so many macro level factors happening that if your goal is to do this initiative and have this outcome, it's hard to control for everything else happening in the world. And there was so much other stuff happening that was hurting the trust and the genocide that it was like completely unclear if there was any connection at all. But then secondly is like, there's a, there are some dynamics where it might benefit some people if you're in a room with them privately to tell you how much they trust you. But then as soon as they have a microphone or a pen in front of them to share all the ways in which platforms are horrible. And I think this, this dynamic definitely existed in parts of the news industry um, where they were constantly pushing, they're putting external pressure on the platforms, but sometimes behind closed rooms, they were, you know, they were saying a very different tune. And, you know, I think some of those just very human dynamics. Some of those are more cynical, whatever, but it made the idea of like building trust and legitimacy. How do you measure that? And how can you actually go against that? And that's to say nothing of whether of your core point, which is, does it actually work? I'm very like sympathetic, if not actually totally agree that I, I don't think you do it to build trust. I think you do it. I think what we saw is you do it because it helps you build a better product. You do it because it helps you get better outcomes with the underlying thing you've built and introduced into the world. So you've been working both in the US context and the EU, if I'm not mistaken, to sort of like nudge us in that direction a little bit, right? To develop transparency legislation. Talk a bit about what would happen if uh, those pieces of legislation became law. Yeah, so in the EU, they, you know, there have been, there's been a multi-year process on this thing called the Digital Services Act. Transparency has been, transparency and accountability has been a core part of it even before I talked to anybody about it as long as research or access. And so by the time I joined, it was partly figuring out some of the some of the ways to get the language and requirements right and not right, but then also specifically was there a way to put in a crowd tangle s provision? It is a sweeping piece of legislation that officially, I think the council actually passed it yesterday officially. Hmm. And now what's going to happen is it's going it to now begins like a multi-year effort to put it into practice. And um, 
this piece is almost as important as all the parts about writing it um, because there's going to be a lot of how to interpret this word or that word. Are the platforms going to be uh, voluntary collaborators in this or are they going to like be pushing and pulling uh, right. to do everything? There's going to be enforcement questions. Um, what if nobody does anything? There's probably going to be different litigation happening through the court systems of different data protection agencies. So there's going to be a very long, messy part going forward. And by the way, there were also a lot of very sticky and tricky questions that I think they were hoping to figure out uh, in the process of writing that they ultimately realized they hadn't gotten answers to. And so they basically kind of put into the into the responsibility of this new agency to figure out over the coming years. So there's also still going to be a lot of work on what the requirements actually mean and um, some of that. And I'll give you one example. There's a bunch of mechanisms for accessing privacy-sensitive data, but only allowing, um, at the time, only like vetted academics to get it. And one of the big negotiations over the final few months was should, there all, should nonprofits and other parts of civil society also be eligible for applying for access? Um, and I, you know, it is a very hard question because as soon as they introduce the idea of nonprofits, suddenly a bunch of like government funded nonprofits started raising their hands. Sure. Some that were like part of the military industrial complex and, you know, others. And in some places, the line between civil society and governments gets very blurry in certain parts of the, you know, Europe. Um, and so they, that question is ultimately going to be figured out over the agency over the next coming years as they try and, you know, get to a little more consensus among everybody. But they're hard questions. But that being said, there are going to be a bunch of requirements, some of which platforms are going to start having to do, you know, by spring, summer of next year around doing some reporting and data sharing that they haven't done in the past. And I think you can actually see this is already, some platforms are actually already getting ahead of it. So YouTube and TikTok both announced researcher APIs in the last two months. And either that's just an incredible coincidence of timing or they're just getting out ahead of what is going to be, they know they're going to have to um, start making available going forward. So there's auditing requirements, there's reporting requirements, there's going to be privacy sensitive data sharing stuff. The mechanism that are really are going to take a couple of years to figure out though. What's your sort of theory of change for how these kinds of requirements drive change internally within companies? I mean, one, one way I've, I've talked about this sometimes is when you are internal to these platforms, I sometimes think there's like three ways to think about transparency. One is uh, you meet the legal requirements, period. Second is you provide enough transparency to influence the legal requirements. And then the third is you generally believe in transparency, perhaps as an end, we can talk about the difference, but um, you believe in being transparent and you will both meet all the re legal requirements, but you also then proactively look for ways to do it because you think it's like, you know, an important part of how you manage your, your platform and company. You know, when I was there, part of, when you get back to that question of like, how did we disagree internally about our vision? We were, our team was squarely in three. We wanted to be proactively transparent about as much as we legally and privacy, in a privacy safe way could about as much as the platform as possible. And for a while, there was like, people were very excited about that and we had a lot of support for it. But over time, it began to shift more towards two. And then in some cases, people who like were squarely in camp one. Um, and by the way, one, one reality of that, and this is also like probably why I ended up helping the regulation stuff is like, for a while, it was very clear that there was never going to be any regulation. And so I think if you were looking at those three options, but you don't see any regulation coming at any point, you know, it's a little easier to like dip your toes in three 
Right. But if you look across the landscape and suddenly there's an enormous amount of regulation coming that's going to pose like, you have to build a lot of new teams and new infrastructure and stuff. It gets a little harder to go in and argue resources for three. And that, you know, that was another reality. Well, so let's imagine that these laws and regulations are up and running and it's a year from now. What are the harms you might imagine resulting from the data sharing? What might be an unintended consequence of uh, the regulations? I will, um, steel man, um, the, uh, the argument against transparency that, that uh, sometimes heard internally at, at Facebook, which was, and I think this, this represents one of like, they would argue the worst case scenario and all this stuff, is that platforms will never be able to share as much data as they have access to internally. And their understanding of what the actual real problems are is never going to be like met or matched by the outside world. And in fact, the more you empower the outside world with small snippets of the data we have access to, the more you are going to, you know, I was like tilting at windmills, we're going to create distractions where we suddenly the outside world thinks this thing is a huge problem. We know it's not mm-hmm. because we have access to way more data and we can't share it. And now we, but now because of the public pressure and because of the public scrutiny and regulatory interest, we then have to shift a bunch of resources to go solve problem X. And meanwhile, we know that it's like what we shouldn't be working on. Listen, I I mentioned this before, but I think anytime you're requiring governments to demand data from private platforms, that can go wrong in lots of different ways. I think what you also run into is how do you avoid governments using this for surveillance? And so, you know, in the US, how do you manage this sort of data sharing with the fourth amendments? Or how do you prevent, you know, if if you're rolling this out, some sort of global model for this. There are very authoritarian, not privacy respecting governments out there. And what could they would do with this data as well? I do the other one too, is I think to the point of some of the, the, the writers you mentioned is, do you end up just getting, do you just end up requiring the wrong mechanisms? And it turns out mm-hmm. that you require, you get the metrics wrong, or it should have been reports. It should have been way more auditing, or it should have been way more, you know, internal process transparency than outcome public content transparency. And you had a swing at the bat and you ended up just getting stuff that doesn't move the dial that much. And it takes another 10 years to to get back up to the plate. So I'm I'm sure that when you were in meta, you had ideas or a kind of imagination about what the policy and regulatory process looks like externally. Having now seen it up close and personal, what do you understand about it that maybe you couldn't quite see from inside the company? I do think... There, there's a little bit of like the grass is always greener on the other side or like some romanticizing about what it's like to be in the other room. What, regardless of what room you're in, either like the the, the regulatory one or the plat, private platform one, there's also just a lot of, there's a lot of competing interests in both rooms. Now, I think the biggest difference is that at the private platform and certainly at Facebook, is Mark wields all authority. And so there are just times in which he can take a process and kill it or accelerate it or change it. And all of those various processes and bureaucracy, like there's just no equivalent to that in certainly in the EU. And that's just a huge structural power thing. And also why one of the reasons I, I tend to err on the side of transparency because of also just like the, the, the current governance structure of certainly Facebook, where 
so much a single individual holds so much power and that there should be even more transparency and accountability when that is the case and you know i also think the degree to which one of the dynamics i i was kind of shocked by but I, I, once i thought about it in sense is like how the loss of trust manifests in these processes is really stark and shocking but it's like you know there would be rooms i'd be in where uh, the regulators would ask the platforms a question platforms would answer and the platforms and the regulators would just have no idea whether to believe them or not they would go out afterwards and ping anybody who'd worked there and now no longer work there and be like is this true is this not true here's like the three things they told us which one of these is accurate which is not and that's just you know that's a really hard place to be if you're trying to make progress on this stuff all right and then the last question i've been ending each podcast on if you could give one piece of advice to your teenage self what would it be huh. why huh i think i would steer away from large philosophical things because i think like the getting there yourself is how you really learn them mm -hmm. so i would probably have a probably like a more tactical <laughs> recommendation yeah. of my teen self and i think that i think actually what i'd probably say is so i was like a computer nerd but my nerd subculture of choice was photoshop and it was part because i was like a designer and an artist but i like i knew every addition to like photoshop that came out and i could tell you the differences between each of them and that was like just where i spent a lot of my middle and high school years and i think i would probably redirect that to more coding and there's just times at which i these days i wish i could i've lost a lot of my coding skills and i wish they were a little more, I had a stronger foundation and I don't use my Photoshop ones very much anymore. Now, occasionally, you know, I can spin up a good t-shirt for a family reunion <laughs> thanks to that, but I don't think I needed to like know 80, you know, it, it, this took about two features on Photoshop, not the 800 I had like gotten very accustomed to. So yeah, that, I think that would probably be my answer. And then where can folks find you online? Um, you know, I don't, I don't I'm not great at online. I have like the world's worst personal website, which keeps me up at <laughs> night, but I think probably Twitter. And so I'm, I'm Brandon Silver M on Twitter. Well, thanks yeah. so much, Brandon, for coming on Untangled. I appreciate it. It was super fun.